Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. Can photojournalism bring about change in a way that is is real and lasting? Meeting with families on the worst day of their life. And then I, I take their picture, I take some information about them, and I step away. I have so little impact on making their day any better. You want to believe that it's helping someone, but you also, you know, you don't want to delude yourself either. What kind of change am I am I contributing to the people specifically that I'm meeting? It sucks, and, I, and it's something I just, I grapple with. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. And I'm Melanie. And today we're joined by Genghis Yar. He's an international photojournalist who's been featured in Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. He specializes in conflict reporting, specifically mass displacement. He's here to talk to us today. But first, we have hot takes. Melanie, you want to go first? Woo! Let's do it. So I recently went on a trip to Mexico where we were told specifically that uh, where we were going required reef-safe sunblock. So no oxybenzone, no octanoxate, nothing that could harm the reef, which is fair, and I appreciate that. But then when we got there, we were told that we were not allowed to put on any sunblock before getting in the water. Mind you, it is noon, the sun is super high in the sky, it is burning outside, but we were not allowed to put on sunblock. I saw a couple putting on sunblock secretly. And I kind of understand where that couple was coming from because we were told we were allowed to put it on and it was reef safe. What would you do? Would you have secretly put on the sunblock? I would not have, but I understand why people did. So your sunblock was reef safe. Yes. But they said that you couldn't wear sunblock because it wasn't reef, because all sunblock was not reef safe. Agreed. That, okay. I put, put on the sunblock. How, how, what's the, what temperature is it? How, how hot are we talking? I mean, I think it was about 98. 98? Yeah, fuck that. Put sunblock on. Come on. Like, what do you... <laughs> hey, Melody, you remember what happened to me in Panama City Beach? Oh, my gosh. It still hurts me to think of how red you were. I've never seen a man that red. It's... Uh, and I was... We were out for, you know, like half a day in the sun in Florida, not even in Mexico. And that was... I honestly almost had to go to the hospital for like third degree burns or whatever, <laughs> whatever degree that is. What? Like se- seventh degree burns, whatever, whatever sunburns. <laughs> We're just are. making up degrees now. I like it. S- seven degrees of sunburn. So it's, it's someone's pretty much telling you, yeah, no, you're gonna like you're gonna have to get skin cancer because I don't trust that your reef safe sunblock is reef safe. Fuck them. Put the sunblock on. But then it's like enough people do that and maybe so like i know mine but it's reef safe if it wasn't reef safe That's i wouldn't fair. be telling you to well, do mine it for sure it, was. your sunblock is reef safe right mine my sunblock was for sure reef safe they just didn't but trust they didn't, you they, they didn't, didn't allow anyone to put on and they didn't check any labels it's on the who i don't know the tour operator whoever these people were it's on them to check to make sure that your sunblock is reef safe if they're too lazy to do that then they can't it's not that they can't be in a position to tell you no you're gonna have to like go home with a sunburn because we don't want to verify your sunblock is reef safe that's on them they could easily right. verify this if they wanted to they're just too lazy to do so this is i feel like i'm more fired up about this than you are <laughs> you are i'm like actually very impressed oh man all right what's next so i have been having a lot of trouble getting a rental car um i want to go out of state and just go on an adventure And so because I haven't been able to get a rental car, I have been looking into getting U-Hauls and using them sparingly. I think it's okay, but I've heard from people that, you know, U-Hauls... Wait, this is for your move, right? No, but this is just, this is totally unrelated to my move. So for example, in Hawaii, that's a place where rental cars are very limited. And right now they're having a huge influx in tourism. And so rentals are very, very difficult to get a hold of. So... Local people who are coming to visit are renting U-Hauls. Do you feel like that's not acceptable? Because then the argument is that you're taking away a car from someone. You're taking away a U-Haul from someone who could actually use it, who is a local. No, you got to do what you got to do. If you need a rental car and there's none available, then get a U-Haul. Yay. It's not. You're paying for it. 
So that's that's perfectly ethical. I'd totally do that. That's hilarious too. <laughs> People just driving around in U-Hauls instead yeah. of rental cars. Hanging out near a I waterfall with your U-Haul. I respect yeah, it. I honestly think that this this is the new van life trend. You're gonna start seeing Instagram pictures pop up of people with their feet hanging out of the back of their u-haul <laughs> next to a waterfall like they're on a beach it's just going to be like you people are going to plaster over the u-haul sign and uh advertising i love it with like all kinds of creative stuff but yeah they're going to live in that you and that's a big space you could really make that space you could live in it that is. thing so that's i like that that's like van life mixed with rental car life is rental car life a thing i don't know I don't know. I think I would rather just do a van life moment, but you if I cannot find you haul it up. a rental car and I want to get from point A to point B, you haul it up. I love it. You haul, I haul, we haul, we're all hauling. <laughs> if this was our last hot take, I could say I could use that as a transition and say we're hauling ourselves right into this interview, but <laughs> I still got some hot takes for you. So Woo, we're not we're not going to go. we'll spare this we'll spare you guys the awkward segue. And my first question for you is so there's a lot of mudslides in Northern California right now, and this is obviously right on the heels of the summer wildfires, and it got me thinking, why do people live in disaster-prone areas? That's a great question. And I don't mean areas that are, like, you're in the, you're in the heartland, and, you know, there's a chance that you might have to deal with a tornado once every 10 years, and it's really not like a very prevalent threat. I'm talking about places like Northern California, like even like New Orleans, that you can set your watch to it, that there's going to be a natural disaster every year, whether it's a hurricane or uh, wildfires or now the you know, earthquakes, mudslides. It seems that when I was in Colorado, every summer you get, I mean, I was, I was there for two summers, but they said every summer, do you basically have to check your phone to look at the air quality to see if you could even go outside because the wildfires blowing both in Colorado and blowing over from California are so bad. And it's true every morning. It's like unhealthy air quality. Do not go outside. So why live in these places? I'm going to leave you with a nugget of wisdom someone once told me. It does not pertain normally to wildfires, but I think it's a good life lesson. Sometimes you got to risk it to get the biscuit. Is the biscuit worth it though? Is the is what is the biscuit? I don't know. Maybe. Well, so I lived in San Francisco for, or I lived in the I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for about four or five years, and I loved it. I loved the proximity to mountains, water. Uh, you would get all the seasons. Basically, it was amazing. That being said, it was very frequent that we would get earthquakes. And I remember I'd be like sitting in my room, like at my desk, and then suddenly the wa the walls would start to shake. And I'm like, oh, there's an earthquake. That happened so frequently. I would sleep through earthquakes all the time. But to another person living somewhere that that doesn't happen, they'd be like, I don't understand why. But it doesn't, if it happens, these little ones, you know, if they happen frequently, but they don't actually disturb your level of, life quality i feel like you know what you get to live near san francisco like that is a beautiful thing yeah i mean obviously northern california is beautiful and there's a lot of reasons why someone would choose to live in a place like that you know even beyond natural beauty it's you know family families there uh you have roots there so there's a million reasons that are obvious why people would choose to live in a place like that but there, uh, it always makes me think because you, you see on you see on the news every summer in california like houses burning down in the hills because of because of wildfires. It's like, obviously you feel terrible for these people, but at the same time, it's like, you, you bought a house in uh, an extremely wildfire prone area, and this happens every single year. And it just kind of, it's like, there aren't there enough places to live in California and even in Northern California that aren't like directly in the path of where the wildfires go. I feel the same way about in the, um, in the Northeast. There's, uh, I live near a barrier island called Plum Island, that, and it's eroding every year, and the, 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 the ocean every year creeps closer and closer to the shore, and houses have fallen in. Wow, and pe oh my people gosh. continue to build houses there. And I'm not saying don't live in New England or don't live in Massachusetts or even in my town, but like, you don't have to build your house right on the precipice of, <laughs> of where the ocean is. I, I will say there is a real sense of Western pride and pompousness that I feel like people think like oh I mean I know what happened to them but like it's not gonna happen to me like the, oh those people were stupid that's that's it that's what it is it's like oh yeah well I saw that on the news that happens to other people it doesn't happen to me it's like well it's gonna probably happen to you if you keep doing it so okay 
was looking for you to uh throw some californians under the bus so that's i i got that out of you now we're good now we can move on (laughs) (laughs) i love california but we make some not some we make some not so good decisions a lot of times hey that's all i needed to hear great next question does being into bitcoin make you a douche yes yes go on being into bitcoin on its own does not make you a douche but everyone i know who's into bitcoin actively talks about it all the time it's like crossfit and nothing you know? else you yes, can't you can't you can't invest in bitcoin without talking about investing in bitcoin like ugh. i mean if you're gonna invest in bitcoin like i'm all for make that money build your future plan ahead but i don't want to hear about bitcoin every single moment of the day it's like hey honey how's it going bitcoin bacon bitcoin i'm like what is that no i i'm not interested no thank you so this sounds like this happens to you a lot. I, I'm not <laughs> surprised by how like triggered you are. So I have really poor taste in um, Men. potential. I mean, obviously, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Wow, you just <laughs> called me out there. I have really poor taste in men. My type is very douchey. On every single date, the talk is about Bitcoin, and I am not interested. Are you actually serious right now? What, what you're saying? Like I've been on really, like two like, dates. These are the dates you go on. And, I've been like, on like two the, of them. Like guys <laughs> actually talk. The guys Absolutely. actually talk about their Bitcoin investments. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know why people are like, let me. Melanie seems like a person that I can talk to about anything. Well, I think the problem the problem with this isn't even the finance guys. It's the non-finance people that think they're suddenly finance geniuses because they saw a Reddit thread about investing in some obscure cryptocurrency and they like got in on it a month and a half after everyone else and made like $75. And then they take a screenshot of their earnings chart and they post it on Instagram with like the rocket ship saying they're going to the moon. <sighs> Oh, that's it's, so specific and like so that's, real. Like that's the the douche. If you're if you're like a legit finance person and you're like you know what you're talking about and you invest in the ground floor of cryptocurrency, good for you, man. Like, hey, I'm not gonna hate on someone for making a ton of money on you know a good investment. Great. I'm all here it's for like, it. It's like it's it's all of a sudden like a year ago when half of my Facebook friends started posting Bitcoin statuses every two days as though they discovered cryptocurrency. And like everyone else is an idiot for not like hopping on the Bitcoin train, and it's like, whoa, dude, you're a graphic design major. Like, we're like, I don't, I'm not taking investment (laughs) advice from you. Like, you saw some Instagram post from your college friend who's in finance, it made some money, and now you want to come off like a genius to all your friends. It's 100% a cult. There's a lot of Kool Aid that has been consumed, and I, I, I just don't want to hear about it all the time. And most people I know who are into Bitcoin only talk about Bitcoin. I don't think they have anything else going on. It's, it's a cult. Like, and like they say in the office, you make more money as a leader, but you have more fun as a follower. So Accurate. Take, Accurate. <laughs> take, that, take that for what you will. Oh, man. And, and with that, we will roll right into our interview with Jengis. We'll see you guys on the other side. Jengis Yar is an international photojournalist and photo editor whose work focuses on documenting civilian casualties of war, and he's with us today. We couldn't be more excited to talk to him. Jengis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this chat today. This is fun. To kick it off, I want to talk a little bit about your motivation for entering the photojournalism field in the first place and kind of what keeps you motivated, what keeps you wanting to travel and tell new stories. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's like a super old thing that like happened like a very long time ago um like how i kind of got into this um and it was i was traveling um i like graduated from college with a business degree um always knowing i wanted to do something with photography um at some point but not really understanding you know much about the different ways photography could be used um i had some internships here and there and um none of them really you know, piqued my interest as something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, so I graduated um, and then wanted to travel a little bit. So I went to Thailand to teach English. Um, and while I was over there, um, I was there for about a year and a half. So I knew some, I knew some Thai uh, by that point. And there was a big uh, protest movement that like kind of took over um, the capital of Bangkok for about 10 weeks um, while I was there. And um I just like went down with my camera um, to the protest and was like taking photos and had this like realization that that was like a job um, as stupid as it sounds, but 
that's like kind of the moment that crystallized what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and so since then I've been like trying to figure out, um, you know, how to, how to break into the industry, how to do photojournalism, how to tell stories, how to communicate what I was seeing with, you know, my friends and family back home. Um, and that's like kind of always been the mission for me personally is just like trying to communicate the things I'm seeing, the things people are going through um, in different parts of the world um, with my family and my peer group and um, people that, you know, I kind of grew up with uh, in the, in the U S um, and just trying to tell their like their stories and the stories of people I meet. So photography was your way of kind of communicating what you, what your experience was abroad to people back home. I think for a lot of people, it's like nowadays, especially it's posting photos on Instagram or, or starting a travel blog. In what way do you think that photojournalism in the way that you practice it can kind of help illustrate complex issues or conflicts in a way that traditional media can't? And by traditional, I guess not traditional media, but like social media in the 21st century, the way that people typically use it. I've used it in kind of uh, a different way than many of my peers have, uh, especially how it's been used in the past by by utilizing social media um, to kind of like the fullest extent I possibly could. Um, so like I was one of the first like photojournalists using Instagram stories um, and like really trying to push all elements of of you know, different aspects of social media to tell the stories I was, you know, I was trying to trying to tell and trying to communicate. And uh, there's lots of like struggles with that too. And lots of, you know, issues around that, that we could like dig into. Um, but I think that social media is, is rather distracting for a lot of people. Um, after using it so much, I find it very limiting uh, in many ways. It's also so ephemeral, like it just, it just goes and disappears and you're on to the next thing. Um, you know, even if you just look at something as like simple as a feed, so pick like your social media of choice, you, you're just scrolling past, you know, you're not sitting there absorbing, you know, taking in all this information. And these, you know, this is something that we've been talking about. Like the industry has been talking about a lot. Um, anybody working in social media has been talking about for years. It's just, it's fluid. It's, it's passing. People don't care about it that much. Um, and I think it's really challenging to bridge the gap between people's attention span and really deep information. Whereas things like, you know, things like books and magazines that you can hold, they can touch, you, you sit there, absorb that information, feel the pages, you know, smell the book, like all that, all that stuff that I, th I think it's, it's so much easier to translate complex information in offline material. Well, I know social media often has this really tainted light. You know, there are so many conversations about social media being a highlight reel, you know, a, a place for cat memes and all that fun stuff, which I mean, I love, I love me a good cat meme, don't get me wrong, but I really love the way that you use stories. Um, one of the things that really struck me from some of the stories you did in 2017 is that you had these stories of little kids standing outside and you could hear, you can hear like the battle happening just a few blocks away. And I think your caption was something along the lines of, you know, um, some families have chosen to stay behind to wait the fight out, but the fight is just a few blocks away. And I think seeing things like that, we don't see that in traditional media. And I think, how do you, how did you transition for, you know, really creating this super real time content? I, what I, I think that, for a long time, traditional media has like ignored that aspect of what's happening to society, where society is no longer mo a large portion, especially our our generation and the generation uh, younger than us, is not consuming traditional media outlets anymore. They're consuming, you know, their friends' feed and what their friends tell them as news. Um, so being able to break into that, and that was kind of my inspiration for doing this. Again, back to like the whole point was just try to like. A, storytelling for me has been to try to reach my friends and peer groups using social media to do that is a very effective way to tell stories. So, you know, when you wake, wake up in the morning and you're riding the bus to work, you know, pre pandemic, um, haven't ridden a bus in years, but like, if, if I'm able to like insert a little bit of the stories I'm trying to tell into your feed while you're, you know, on your commute or 
you're eating breakfast, like whatever, I can just like in, insert a little bit of what I'm, what I'm seeing and the stories I'm trying to tell into that feed. I think it's super important. There's definitely a changing landscape of international photojournalism over the past decade. And I know we've talked about so many different mediums. Do you feel like journalism as a whole might fizzle out in the next, you know, 15 years? Um, I mean, I think I think the industry is changing um, significantly. Um, local news is dying. Um, inter- like what we've always seen as international photojournalists are not really a thing much anymore. Um, you know, there's a limited number of people that that do what was done by hundreds of people uh, like a decade ago, um, and it's it's only shrinking. Why is that? But the cost of photography gear is is dropped dramatically. Everybody's a photographer now. Um, I can take a picture with my cell phone and print it in a newspaper. Um, so can you know some some kid in in Iraq? There's you know what he's seeing or she's seeing um, can translate to the page very easily. Um, and so the need for the need for like a, a a very skilled, highly trained photojournalist to fly around the world is not is not where it was a decade or two decades ago because other people um, are being they're they're learning the same skills like I was taught ten years ago, but in in the places that um, we're we're trying to figure out you know we're trying to get that news from. So um, yeah, I mean everybody's the the. Uh, the uh, the difficulty for access is is dropped so significantly in photography that um, yeah that's obviously going to have an impact on the industry as a whole. I mean, you'd be inclined to say that that's a good thing. People are more empowered and and have more access to equipment. It's putting you out of a job potentially in the future, but it's a good. No, I think I think the power else. of storytelling um, in you know democratizing that power is is super important. Um, I mean, there's obviously like so many ways that can go wrong too, where we, you know, no one needs a journalist to tell their story anymore. They can tell their story, you know, themselves. And there's, there's issues that come, come with that too, be it like a militia group, you know, broadcasting, um, you know, the story that they want to tell, like take ISIS, for example, like they had their own media channel. They didn't need journalists to come in and, and tell their story, but it's also super empowering for people. And, you know, especially like marginalized groups, who have had their story told incorrectly by you know media for years are able to tell their own story um, and they're able to share their own story with an audience that's that's really wanting more information about about um, you know said said group. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because that is kind of part of the problem too. The access to media platforms and communication is so much easier nowadays that everyone has a megaphone. You don't have to be part of an institutionalized nation state or be an expert or be a journalist or have a legitimate media platform. And I think that's kind of what's led to a lot of the problems we're having is people can't distinguish between what is a legitimate source and what is just some guy who's pissed off in West Virginia screaming hate speech. I mean, this is kind of taking what you were saying a few steps further but it's not always a good a good thing for people to have that that easy access to an audience of potentially thousands, whether that's through photography or journalism or a blog or have that reach in the hands of people that can't be trusted with it. Yeah, I mean, but there's there's nothing really we can do about that. That's like no. you know, this is the world as it is. So figuring out a way to you know move forward and create. Um, you know, create trusted, create trust in, in media again, I think is, is super important. People have lost trust in mainstream media, which I think is, um, you know, a terrible thing. If we can't trust, you know, certain sources of, you know, if we can't trust the, the sources of news that are, are trained and, you know, skilled in, in storytelling, then we end up, um, you know, falling prey to propaganda and whoever else is out there trying to tell us a story that might not be true. And how do we build that trust back? Because it seems like this kind of very, very precipitously declining slope that we're not going to be able to come back from. Yeah, I don't, you know, if I had an answer, I'd be a millionaire. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just try to keep plugging away on, on the things that I care about and the stories I'm trying to tell and the people, you know, I'm trying to tell them too. And, um, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the rest of it. Um, and it's it's a continual effort to try to pull myself back and just focus on, um, you know, what I'm, the stories that I'm trying to tell instead of getting distracted by all the other chaos that's out there right now. 
Damn, I was really tr- hoping to solve the uh, U.S.'s mistrust in media problem here today on No Blackout Day. It's, <laughs> that's, that's a letdown. I thought we were going to solve this whole problem right now. It's a global thing, too. This isn't just limited to the U.S. I know um, it's very easy just to think that this is a U.S. problem. But if you look at the um, you know Facebook papers that came out this past week, um, if you see like Facebook's, like, Facebook's impact globally is insane, right? So P- Facebook is more or less the Internet for a lot of people around the world. And Facebook has, you know, prioritized the US elections and, you know, several other things are super important, like no argument there, but did not prioritize similar things that were happening around the world. You know, didn't didn't put moderators um, in places or overseeing places that needed it. Um, and which led to which led to some serious serious uh, harm happening um, in in countries around the world. Well, then you have countries where you know the government owns or is investing heavily in the news networks, which makes them not unbiased. And I think people who are consuming that news don't necessarily realize that and think it's it's like the difference between watching the typical Fox News. Uh, news desk and watching Tucker Carlson, people don't necessarily understand what is opinion and what is actual straight news anymore. That line almost doesn't exist. So in these countries where the government owns the media, people are consuming it, having no idea that what they're hearing and what they're seeing is actually propaganda and not straight news. And I think it's like an education. The solution, if there is a solution, which there might not be, it's in education and educating people in like, media literacy almost yeah i agree um i think a good a good starting point would be media literacy and i think social media literacy i i was uh a few years ago i was like brought into facebook and instagram and um to talk to them about you know my use of their platforms and the one thing i like suggested to fix the problem of disinformation on their platforms was actually to to get off platform and to go into schools or to fund programs to go into schools and teach people how to, you know, consume social media correctly, how to tell the difference between, and like, so like on a base level, the fact that like anybody can post and just like understanding the fact that like anybody can post a picture and, and really backing up to how disinformation is created online and understanding the platforms on a real grand granular level. Um, I think we should be talking about this in school. This should be something that's, you know, Facebook shouldn't, I don't want Facebook going into school, but like I want, I'd like there to be some sort of educational body um, talking about social media and disinformation on a real, a real um, entry level way. Cause that's not a skill we learned in school. We didn't like growing up, we didn't have this to contend with uh, this, this, trying to discern what's a real source and what's a fake source and what is this information and what isn't. It's almost unreasonable to expect people to know how to do that kind of thing because we grew up in, in a world of traditional media and where not everyone could post online and where the things we were learning about were being given to us by experts. And that's not the world we live in now. Well, like, I, I just think about like my, you know, my parents and like my aunts and uncles who use Facebook in such a flippant way and they don't, totally understand how information is shared on these networks. Um, and I really think just like bringing them together and like putting them in a class where like sit down, let me explain how the internet works uh, would be really useful. And like, I've done it to a few of them, but I think on a you know, global level, you know, informing people uh, in some sort of like classroom situation would be really helpful. We're on our way. We're on our way to solving this problem. <laughs> You're welcome world. Let's go. Let's get back a little bit and pivot to your uh, stories you've told. Can photojournalism bring about change in a way that is is real and lasting? Um, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, it's something I've struggled with for a long time um, and continually ask myself. Um, I think, and it's it's a it's you know it's a difficult question too because like I'm very often going into situations that are extremely difficult for the people that are going through them. So I'm like, you know, meeting with families on the worst day of their life. Um, and then I, I take their picture, I take some information about them and I step away and I give them nothing in return. Um, I don't help them. You know, I don't, I, I have so little impact on making their day any better and like helping them. And um, that really wears on me. And I, I, I'm always asking myself, like, you know, 
what kind of change am I, am I contributing to this, you know, to the people specifically that I'm meeting? Um, and it's hard to back up and like say that, you know, I'm doing something, I'm doing something for the, the greater good when the people I'm meeting are not receiving any benefit on that day. And, um, it sucks. And I, and it's something I just, I grapple with. And, um, I'm not sure if photojournalism, um, is creating real change for the people that, you know, we're in, in engaging with. Um, and, but, but I do, I do think that in the long term, photojournalism is extremely important. Um, and I just, I try to remind myself that, that capturing the moments, um, that I'm, you know, witnessing today, uh, in 10 years, uh, may be like critically important for, you know, said person in the city or country or region to look back on. Um, and, and especially in like an unbiased way, it's like, I captured this moment. Um, this is what happened here. And for a kid to look back and say like, that's what happened to my city. Like that, like I can, I can look at that picture and see what happened to my family member 10 years ago. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of like my North star in, in terms of, um, you know, what, what kind of actual change that my photos can like hopefully one day have is just like the documentation of history down to an individual level though, there's, you know, certain situations where some change can happen and somebody's life could be better affected. But, um, for the most part, it's, you know, it's, it's not there and it's sad. What are some of the most powerful stories you've told? There's, there's a lot. Um, I think some of the some of the ones where like I've stayed in touch with people over time um, are obviously like probably the ones that come to mind first. Cause I, you know, talk to those individuals on a weekly or monthly basis and I'm continually, continually reminded of their current situations. Um, there's a, there's a young woman who I met in 2019, like right before, um, right before COVID hit, I guess. So it was like the fall I was out and I went to Syria for a Rolling Stone and then crossed in through like into Northeastern Syria from Iraq and then went back to Iraq. Um, and this was right after Trump's like betrayal of the Kurds where he like pulled out US troops and then Turkey took an advantage and like stepped in and there was all this fighting because of it. Um, and so I, we were meeting all these refugees as they were fleeing out of Syria um, and coming into refugee camps in Iraq. Um, and I met this this woman and her young child and her husband um, in a refugee camp, like just as they were arriving. Um, and, you know, she spoke English. She was college educated, um, but she had been just her life had been totally destroyed by you know, the war in Syria, which has been ra raging now for over a decade. Um, and she just, you know, went through the amount of times where she's had to flee, um, and had to like leave her home, jumping from city to city, to city in Syria, trying to like find some sort of safety, um, for herself and her family. And now she had like a young child, um, and she had thought she found safety in the city in Syria, um, before she left, um, cause everything was peaceful. And then, you know, the U S pulls out and things go chaotic again, and she's forced to uh, once again run um and she stood there in this camp and it was like the sun was setting and she was crying you know speaking to me in english you know just it was just really really sad and i you know i got her whatsapp and she didn't know what she was gonna do she was just like stuck in this camp um and she was trying to get out like to meet some family members but because of the security situation she wasn't allowed to leave and you know i stayed in contact with her um and i was supposed to go back and meet her uh, like six months later and then like COVID hit, but we've like, I, you know, what's after and I'm on my friends with her on Facebook now, but her, her family's finally gotten out of the camp. They're in a safe, you know, a safe city. Um, but it's just, it's one of those things. Like I meet, I, I met so many people like that and the war, war pushes people, you know, in ways that's just horrific to, horrific to go go through um you can see it on like the u.s border now people are fleeing conflict in central america you look at you know greece uh the turkish borders um hungary for example um people people are moving uh, because of the conflicts around the world um and i hope people are paying attention to that um, because they're really they're they're individual human stories um that are being impacted by impacted by these wars and and you know gang gang driven conflict
when your experience with that girl puts a, a really human face on political decisions that I think a lot of voters have a hard time kind of wrapping their head around what the human impact of a U.S. foreign policy is. So even that just that brief story you, you just told kind of humanizes foreign policy agenda that I think is very otherwise very amorphous and hard for people to really get their head around. So I think that if you're looking for the benefit of what you do and how it can change, if not the girl's life, at least raise awareness of a situation and educate people. I think that's exactly what it's doing. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. Um, but also that story came out like, you know, three months after I met that girl. Um, it gave her no tangible benefits. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody came away from that story and was like, oh, this is going to change the way I vote. Um, or like, you know, change how I care about foreign policy. I, I, I just don't, I, I don't know. It's something I, I continually ask myself. And I know, like, I've, I've heard what you've said before. It's something I told myself at one point, but, you know, after being in this industry for over a decade and seeing the trauma and, and uh, pain so many people go through around the world, um, while I'm kind of just like walking around taking pictures of it, it's, you know, I don't know if the tangible benefits there. Um, I wish it was. Yeah, and it's, it's it's tough to know when you're steeped in that every day to know you want to you want to believe that it's helping someone, but you also because that's what you're devoting your life to, but you also don't know, you know, you don't want to delude yourself either. Well, I I, I will I will tell you a positive story. Um, so there was a in 2015, I met um, I, I got contacted by UNICEF to do this like camera project to teach refugees um, photography in, in Iraq. Um, it was it was awesome. It was like I, I love programs like that. I've, I've um, you know taught a lot of people photography over the years, um, and so we the UNICEF identified a, a few a few kids to do photography with, and they gave them these little like Nikon point and shoots, which were like basically indestructible cameras. Um, and there was this young boy named Murad in this refugee camp in northern Iraq um, in this town called Acre, a beautiful town. This is like stunning mountainous town. Um, and I went up there a few times and we, you know, I, I taught him photography as best I could, but he was like, I think it was like eight or something when I was, when I started teaching him. Um, but like over the years, he's just like progressing in this kid who just loves photography. Um, he messages me like every other day on Facebook, like sending me his photos. Um, and over the years, we've also like, we, I put this out on social media. Like I, I put him out in my newsletter and like people donated like a new camera to him. So now he has like a Fuji F100F or something, like one of the newer ones. Um, and he's like turned into such a brilliant photographer. And it's so cool too, like looking back over, you know, the last like six years of his photography. Cause it's like, it's, he's able, and back to this, like, you know, marginalized people able to tell their own stories thing. He's able to tell like the story of his life and show his life and the life of refugees around him in this camp in a way that someone like me, even though like I'm super skilled at photography and like I'm able, like, really good at storytelling, like, I could never tell what this, you know, this young boy is able to show um, in, in his refugee camp. And it's really, really beautiful to see. Um, and it's also just like so wonderful to see like a young person so in love with photography and not obsessed with social media. Like he's not on Instagram. He's on Facebook, but he's like sending me the photos. He's not posting them for like likes and stuff. You know, he, it's just, it's really nice to see a young person love photography um, in such a pure way. Um, and also just like the amount, like the, the way he's able to tell stories um, is so beautiful and, and really nice to see in a way that like I could never do. Before we move on to our last segment, which is a listener question, I want to touch on one more thing. You spent a lot of time uh, documenting the civilian experience uh, struggling against the Islamic State. And I wanted to ask, what did you learn during your time doing that about life under the Islamic State, under ISIS, that the casual observer or consumer of news might not realize about those conditions? Um, man, there's just like, there's, there's a lot of things that don't really bubble to the surface of most news reports, um, or like are not widely understood. I think, especially from a Western perspective, we look at ISIS as a threat to us, um, you know, a threat to the U.S. or a threat to European countries in some way, be it through terrorist attacks um, or you know, some something else. I, whatever, whatever the U.S. thinks is the threat from ISIS, 
we often think about it in a very like how this is going to impact us on an individual or like national level. Um, but when it when you really get down to it, ISIS's main victims were Sunni Muslims. ISIS's main victims were people in the cities that they controlled. The beheadings that happened, you know, on the street corner or in the town square weren't Americans for the most part. Like there's, yeah, obviously specific situations of journalists being beheaded, you know, James Foley, for example. Um, but w when you when you go into these places, into, you know, Mosul or Raqqa, um, you know, outskirts of Kirkuk, th those aren't you know, places where Westerners were living, that those were Sunni, Sunni Arab um, areas of the world. Um, those people were the ones being beheaded, being dragged out of their house, being locked in prisons. Um, those are the people who were made to you know, wear long beards or, uh, you know, cover themselves completely, um, who were like women who were left out of schooling, um, Yazidi, not Sunni Arabs, but like Yazidis who were, who were tortured and, and, made into sex slaves. There's the people who lived in these areas that were most affected. And I think often when, when we talk about ISIS, um, it's so, it's, it's so like how this affects us in so many ways, but it's really the people who lived in these areas who are significantly affected uh, by these terror groups. Right. And that goes back to our discussion of news and the way that it's framed to us when you watch the news is basically how does this impact your life? How is this an urgent threat to you, the American citizen. And it's because that's the only way, unfortunately, that the American citizen is going to care about this stuff. Yeah, I don't think everybody does that. But um, I certainly think that's part of the problem for sure. All right, we're going to switch over to our listener question, uh, which today comes to us from Jeff. And the question is, is slum tourism ethical? Slum tourism basically being visiting like a very impoverished neighborhood on a tour bus taking pictures out the window saying like, Oh, look how quaint and charming this is. Yeah. I mean, it just, you having to explain the like the question, just, uh, I encourage people to, um, experience the way, you know, people live their lives around the world. Um, and, and try to understand it. I think walking, you know, taking a tour bus through a slum is like a terrible idea. Um, but engaging with people, you know, wherever they live, be it a slum or a high rise is important and understanding, you know, the people that live there um, and like what they're going through is educational. So, you know, I encourage people to get out of their comfort zone and go meet people they would other, otherwise meet, you know, however it's framed as slum tourism. I, that sounds awful, um, but just, you know, get out, get out, of, get out of your house, go walk around, go meet some people, get on a plane and do it. Um, connect with other people. I think that's important. Yeah. The other positive thing about it, I guess, would be those neighborhoods, those cities can really benefit from tourism money. So, you know, visiting, patronizing local businesses, going to these places and spending money is, it has an economic benefit as long as you're being respectful and mindful of the situation you're in. I think it all comes down to intention. I think if we can go and visit new places with the idea of how can we learn and how can we be a part of this experience, I think that changes it. If you're going and being like, ooh, let me go and take photos with these children who don't have shoes and post it on my Instagram, that feels so disgusting on so many levels. But if you're saying, let me go and visit and get a new perspective and maybe take something away back, back to wherever you're from, whether it's a Western country or not, I think that changes it. Sure. It's, like, it's also what you do with the experience. So if you're doing it so you can post a dramatic picture on Instagram and get likes. That's one thing. If you're doing it for personal growth and personal experience and to learn, that's another thing. So it's all about your motivation as well. On that note, Jengis, thanks so much for coming on. This was awesome. Where can people find you? Check out your photography. Uh, yeah, I, I pulled most of my photography offline. I'm trying to like D, uh, okay. D line. Um, but uh, I'm 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 on you know connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at uh, Jengis Yar um, or you know shoot me an email I'm at uh, studio at Um I'm always here to talk and I, I you know I have a I have a group of of young photographers that I I send out um, information to be it like new training opportunities or anything like that I'm also like always just here for questions if people need um, you know want to know more about 
you know, what's going on in the Middle East, what's happening with the fight against ISIS, all that type of stuff. Or if you, you know, you're interested in photography um, and are like debating, debating different ways to get into it. Let me know. I'm, I'm here for, I'm here for those questions. Thanks so much, Jangus. It's been such a pleasure. We'll see you soon. Great. It was, it was really nice talking with you. This was a, a interesting conversation. Thanks so much, guys. All right, welcome to our News of the Day segment. Thanks again to Jengus for coming on. And we're going to talk about this week's hottest travel news, starting with this article that says, where to travel in 2022 if you're a Scorpio? And this got me thinking, what do we think about astrology? What do we think about making life decisions like travel destinations based on your astrological sign? That is a great question. Well, let me start by saying that I am a Virgo. Basically, that's all I know about astrology. I know that I'm a Virgo because I'm born on September 4th. And I know that Virgos are supposed to be a little bit type A and very loyal. That's all I know. Why would I use that information to help me travel? What? No. So you think astrology is bullshit? Yes. Okay. I feel like we're told that Virgos do these types of things and are organized and blah, 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 blah. And so then we slowly become these things simply because we were told that we are these things. I think it's bullshit. Here, I mean, here's my take on this, I guess, is if you're, if you just like, like to wake up in the morning and check your horoscope, makes you feel good. It's just kind of a fun little lighthearted thing you do to start your day. Awesome. Yes. Like, go ahead, start harming anyone, do it. If you're making like actual life decisions based on the, your star sign and Mercury being in retrograde and explaining away your relationship problems because of the way the stars are aligned. He's today, a Capricorn. I'm a Virgo. It could never work. It's just like, it, come on, get a life. What I've never understood about this is that the great thing about being human is that you have agency. You have uh, free will and choice and everyone is unique and individual and has their own personality. And what star signs do is they boil your whole essence down to a type, one of how many, I don't know how many signs there are, 12. And if you are, if you're a Leo, then these are your qualities. If you're a Capricorn, these are your qualities. And you just can't change that because that's just how you are. And if you're, if you're behaving a certain way, it's not because you're you. It's not because you actually have emotions and grievances and life experience. It's because you're a Virgo, and that's it. That's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. And that's just, it's demeaning. It's insulting. I think it's, I just think it's just absurd. I really do. I also feel like a lot of times these horoscopes and astrology can be very vague. I'm reading this article right now, which to be fair is actually a really fun article. And if I, if I had no idea where I wanted to go and it was like best travel destination for Virgo, I would probably look at the list because why not? Um, that being said, I'm going to go ahead and read part of this. As a water symbol, you are deeply in touch with your emotions, intuition, and creativity. Destinations near bodies of water, places that inspire an emotional reaction, or where you can get your creative juices flowing will also be beneficial for you. Aren't all of those things, like, pretty much applicable to almost all humans? Right. It's like, it's written so that anyone who reads this, who is alive and breathing is going to read it and say, wow, like that's me. How did they know? It's like, oh, what am I going to read this and say? Well, I'm not in touch with my emotions. I'm not creative. (laughs) I hate water. I don't have any creative juices. None. Who's going to say that? No, everyone's going to be like, well, of course that's me. How do they know I like water? Wow. I think it's like girls on Tinder that say they like dogs and the beaches and adventures. Everybody likes those things. Newsflash. Just a Pam looking for her gym. I mean, (laughs) yes. I mean, those are just universal things, universal truths. Okay. So my verdict is I think Zodiacs and astrology, they're really fun. Like I used to open up my Cosmo magazine and on the back page would be like astrology and things to look out for for the next month. And it was fun. But I'm not necessarily going to pick my travel destination solely on the fact that I'm a Virgo. No, thank you. All right. Well, I'm glad we agree on this, seemingly, so we can move on to the next news of the day, which is... Let's do it. The most common second languages spoken around the world. It's not the number two language. It's what do people speak as a second language? So they have a primary tongue that they speak, and then they have a second. So, Melanie, what do we think is the most common second language spoken around the world? And that is 
So people speak their their mother tongue, right? What is the most common second language? Oh man, well, first of all, kudos to people who know multiple languages because I only know the one. Sad, sad times. I don't even know what a, a I mean, maybe a, Italian, maybe Spanish <laughs> could be a great second language. Okay, there we know. go. Spanish. Ding, ding, yes, ding. Spanish yes. is the world's most common second, second language. language. Ooh. Is that what, if you were to speak another language, if you were to learn another language, assuming you were capable of learning another language, which I'm not, what language <laughs> would you learn? So I know bits and pieces of French. Um, I went and took French in high school, and then I've been to France. Complete the rest of this uh, segment in French, please. Absolutely not. It would be like not even elementary level. It would be like this isn't French. No. <laughs> please dub over my voice, Evan, in some really bad French accent. Oh man, I think it would be. I, I probably want to learn French, but I, my family is also part Thai, so I would love to know. I would love to know my family's like common language. Um, what about you? What would be your second language? Well, I will note really quickly that Canada's most common second language is French. So you there might you, go. you might you might need to get your passport ready and uh, head on Honestly, up to Canada. I've seen a lot of the guys who like come onto The Bachelor who are French and they're like from Vancouver and uh, they're really attractive. So if I need to skadoodle my way across the border and go meet some hunky French hockey player Canadians, I will do it in the name Washed of up reality TV show star. Okay. <laughs> okay. As far as what I would learn as a second language, ah. So I've attempted to learn in the course of my life Spanish, French, German, and Italian. Failed miserably at all four of them. So I think those are off the table. I think I'm going to have to go with South Korean. Uh, that's specific. Because, or I guess, I guess just Korean. I think it's the same. So just Korean. The reason being because I've heard that the language, the written language, is the easiest to learn for an English speaker, that it's almost like you can directly translate the um, the characters to English letters. Oh. So like A directly equals something, and I that, I might be wrong on that, but I heard that a few years ago, and I kind of I looked into it for like like a week, and I was like I'm gonna learn South Korea to write South Korean, and it kind of seemed like that was the case. So I think speaking wise, you know, obviously a lot tougher, but at least in terms of the writing of it, I do think that it's like among the easier languages to learn to write. And it'd be so random and cool to be like, well, people are like, oh, what, what language do you speak? Everyone says, oh, Spanish or French. Oh, South Korean. Like, yeah, who doesn't? How often would you use that? I feel like Spanish or French would come in handy. Almost never, Melanie. Almost never. It would come in handy maybe as I try to somehow get a trip to North Korea, which is my number one travel goal i we actually made that, that joke i made that joke to gunner on last week's episode that i like number my number one travel dream destination north korea and he laughed like i was kidding and we just kind of moved past <laughs> it i wasn't i wasn't kidding like i want that is where i want to go is north korea oh man that's number one for me so i love that you want to do that and i want to go to bali i'm like let me live in a tree house let me eat acai bowls hey, bali is the north korea of the pacific they say they that's what it says that's what it says on the sign when you fly in Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's definitely it. Okay. That's definitely on a sign. Absolutely. All right. Bali, North Korea, top trending destinations right now. So hit them both up. Figure it out. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Evan Flo underscore on Instagram, and she is Melanie Sutra. We'll see you guys next week.